Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Kunle Olukotun. Uh, Kunle is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Stanford University, as well as the chief technologist at Samba Nova Systems. Kunle, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Uh, so you just came from giving a talk on designing computer systems for software 2.0 here at NeurIPS in Montreal. Uh, and I am really excited about digging into uh, the topic of your talk. But before we do that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. How did you get started in kind of this intersection of computer systems, architecture, and machine learning? Yeah, so I've been in computer architecture for a long time. I've uh, been at Stanford for almost 27 years. And uh, I had done a lot of work in, in computer hardware. In fact, uh, many of the ideas that underlie uh, multi-core microprocessors were developed in my lab in the mid-90s before they became mainstream. And I, uh, I uh, did a, a company, a startup, uh, it was called Afara Web Systems, uh, and we did some uh, you know, high-throughput uh, uh, processes for the data center, and it got acquired by uh, Sun Microsystems, and subsequently Sun was acquired by Oracle, and uh, all the big Spark uh, servers were, were basically based on the technology that was acquired back uh, in 2002. So I have a long history of kind of doing hardware. Uh, you know, about uh, about 10 years ago, I sort of transitioned, you know, after I came back from doing the first startup, I realized that the issue uh, going forward wasn't so much, uh, you know, building new hardware. It was actually getting programs to run efficiently on that hardware and, and pro getting programs at all, right? Uh, and so uh, we... You bought into the right once run anywhere at Sun, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Big part you know, of the mission there. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the joke was right once debug everywhere. Right. <laughs> Uh, so, but yeah, and I mean, I think Java didn't help the cause really. I mean, <laughs> made things worse from an efficiency point of view, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly uh, uh, you could uh, imagine that uh, uh, maybe it made uh, developers more productive, but that's arguable too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're still garbage collecting yeah, to this exactly, day. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, what, uh, you know, but yeah, about 12 years ago now, we started thinking about, you know, how could we kind of make a, a difference uh, to the application developer? How could we make their life easier? And, you know, it, it, you know, you even go, you go back uh, to sort of 2006, uh, seven, and it was clear that the world of, 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 of high performance hardware, which is a world that I have spent most of my life in, wasn't just parallel cores, right? It wasn't just, uh, you know, multiple CPUs. It was also these, these, these new up-and-coming things called GPUs. And, uh, and then, of course, it wasn't just uh, shared memory. It was also clusters, right? And people wanted to program these things, and yet every programming, every, every, everything, every program you needed to write uh, needed to be different for the particular platform that you you wanted to run on, right? And that, to me, seemed like a, 
uh, a, a real problem from the point of view of the software developers. And so what we decided, the, the right approach, uh, was uh, to look at using domain-specific languages, right? Mm. So domain-specific languages had been around, and you're probably uh, familiar with them, but let me just define them just for sure. the sake of, <laughs> of uh, you know, to make sure that everybody understands what they are. So they, they, domain-specific languages, as the name suggests, uh, are designed for a particular domain, right? That was a particular problem domain that you want to solve. And so if you can give uh, the programmer both the operators and the data types that match that domain, then they can, you make their life a lot easier, right? A really good example, uh, since we're talking about machine learning, would be MATLAB, right? So matrix and linear algebra, you give, give yourself a bunch of matrix and linear, linear algebra operators and data types, matrices and vectors and so on. And then now you can write your, your algorithms uh, with, with linear algebra much more easily. So, you know, so it sounds like if I can interrupt, it sounds like you consider MATLAB to be a DSL. Yeah. Which suggests to me that there's a spectrum of domain specificity. Yes. You know, in the DSL world. Right, 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 right. Yes, there are absolutely. So, I mean, there are, there are other examples that are, you know, different domains. SQL's another example, mm -hmm. right? Different domain, but again, MATLAB may be a bad example since you could probably use it to program almost anything. <laughs> but the question is, how efficient would it? If you wanted to write an operating system using MATLAB, right. <laughs> probably not be a, <laughs> a good thing to do. So, so there's this notion, notion that, yeah, it really should fit the problem that, that, that you're trying to solve. Uh -huh. But, you know, the thing about MATLAB uh, that is a good example of, of the kind of initial approach of domain-specific languages is that they weren't really focused on performance, right? Mm -hmm. They focused on productivity and not performance, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and it was almost the sense that, hey, you, couldn't, you, you had to give up one to get the other. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the research approach that we took was to say, look, there's some real value by, by using the abstractions provided by the, the domain-specific languages. They're higher level. They're more declarative. You're saying what you want rather than you know, you know how to get it right. So the, the uh, example would be you know MATLAB says, hey, this is matrix multiply. If you do that in C, you write a bunch of loops, right? I don't know what to do with a bunch of loops, right? But I do know what to do if you tell me it's matrix multiply. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that 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 raising of the abstraction level was something that could be a driver for high performance if you knew what to, if you had the right sort of com compiler technology. So I don't want to rat hole on the compiler technology that we developed, but it was really cool and it did all sorts of things, <laughs> uh, including enable you to take a high-level MATLAB-like program and run it without modification on the whole range of, of, of computing devices you might see in the data center. So multi-core, uh, GPU, cluster, or any combination of the, of the like. So running on them isn't usually the problem. The problem is taking advantage of them. Presumably, it's taking. Full yeah, 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 yeah. It's taking full of <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, running. Yeah, yeah, right. You could, you, you could tap one CUDA thread and, and it wouldn't right. do much good. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I'm just taking, taking all, you know, all the apps that are running on my laptop and I just see one of the, core, yeah. the cores. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. By, by, by running, yes, actually getting good performance. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully close to what you would have gotten if, you, if you'd had written in this low level thing, right? Mm -hmm. So. You know, if the low-level programming languages were CUDA for a GPU, could you take this high-level representation and get to the performance level that you would have gotten had you written the CUDA? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. But thank you for clarifying. <laughs> <that point. laughs> 
And then, uh, but, but, but what that got us into was this whole realm of data analytics. Uh-huh. And so we started looking at how to do SQL and Spark and, and, and machine learning. And we, in fact, defined a new uh, DSL uh, for the machine learning world that we called Optimal. Uh, you know, it was just a play on, <laughs> but it was spelled O-P-T-I-M-L, right? <laughs> ah, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was 2008 when we kind of defined it. it was so ML hadn't really taken off then, but it was, okay. it was, uh, uh, so we like to think we were ahead of the curve. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was kind of the impetus for kind of our, our playing in this whole machine learning space, right? Okay. There's a notion that, hey, this, uh, we, we can define DSLs, we can, we, we can do uh, uh, machine learning algorithms, uh, uh, we can write them easily, we could uh, uh, run them uh, efficiently on a whole range of architectures. I should note that the other piece of technology that we uh, kind of relied on was all these DSLs were not what, what are called standalone DSLs. So an example of a standalone DSL would be the examples I gave before, MATLAB, uh, SQL, they're standalone, right? An example of an embedded DSL would be something like TensorFlow, right? And so all our uh, uh, DSLs were embedded in Scala. Okay. And uh, you know, one thing that I, I mentioned in the talk, uh, and you know, part, you know, I'm an academic, so it's all about sort of putting your stake in the ground from the point of view of an idea and then seeing, you know, what, what uh, you know, who came after, right? right. And did they, did they cite you? <laughs> so, uh, but so, so we did Optimal, as I said, in 2008 and TensorFlow's later. But, but TensorFlow, you know, if you look at all of these data alloc applications, machine learning, you'll see that, of course, the, Essentially, you can describe them at some level of abstraction as a set of operators with data flow arcs between them, right? right. They all look like that way. And you define the operators look, may look different, uh, but they fundamentally all look that way. And so, yeah, what we wanted at the end of the day was it was a data flow graph. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do you get it and how do you describe it? TensorFlow takes a very explicit uh, way of describing your, fl- your your flow graph, right? But that's not the most natural thing to do. The most natural thing is just describe your, your your program, and then have the underlying infrastructure extract that graph. And so that's what we did, right? And so one of the slides in the talk, I show you know, I said, I said here's K-, K means clustering, right? Here's the four lines of code it takes in, in my DSL, and here's, <laughs> here's TensorFlow. It takes twenty because. <laughs> so what are the four in uh, yeah, yeah. optimal? Yeah. What are the kinds of? Uh, well, so to you, get at the level. You know, level. So you have uh, group by right. Okay. You know, group. You know, group the samples by their distance to the means. Okay. Great, you know, you're done. All of a sudden, you've got clusters. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and now, then, then the other lines. Okay, now, now go, now go find the the uh, the centroid of the clusters, and then uh-huh. you've got your new means. Yeah. So that you know, I could describe it now, and you know, anybody who kind of knows the group by operator like you do can 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 grok it instantly, yeah. right? Yeah. As opposed to you know <laughs> constructing some graph. Uh, right. Uh, right. So that's that's the difference in the structure. 
Yeah, and I think that's the that's the <laughs> idea that I was getting at with these like the, the variations of uh, domain specificity. Like you're at, operating at a way higher level of abstraction. Yeah, yeah. And so, is it, so this DSL you said 2008. Yeah. yeah. Um, has has this continued to be kind of well, central to the, some of the things you've been working on since? Or yeah, so I mean, I think it, it was an early. So so let me kind of just trace uh, the arc of of, of 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 what we did, and then it'll become clear uh, where it sits. So you know, so yeah, that was kind of okay. We had we had these these DSLs um, embedded in Scala, but our thesis was. If you want to develop a new application, one DSL wasn't going to do the job mm. for the reason that you just described, because they, they were specific to, you know, so you, so you say, okay, now I want a SQL piece. That means I need a SQL DSL. Mm-hmm. I want a machine learning piece. That means I need a machine learning DSL. I want a graph and analytics piece. That means I need a graph a DSL. I, and I maybe come up with something else, right, mm-hmm. that, that you might need. And then you say, well, I've got this application that, that is going to use all of them in some way. We can argue whether they're going to use them sequentially and the data is going to pass between one, mm-hmm. whether the things are going to be more intertwined. But let's suppose that uh, you have multiple DSLs. What you'd like to do is to be able to take a single application composed of multiple DSLs and do global optimization. Right. Right? That was, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, <laughs> that's what you want to do. And so, uh, in order to do that, right? I mean, the uh, the, the solution that comes to mind is the, the, is to say, okay, why don't we capture the uh, since we we said they all they all look like graphs anyway, right? Right? Could we figure out some underlying representation that's graph data flow like mm-hmm. that all of these DSLs could map into? Mm-hmm. Right. So then you have dependencies. Yeah. And you can parallelize. And you parallelize, and then you can fuse across the boundaries of the DSLs right. and, and get rid of intermediate data and, yeah. <laughs> and, and and data movement, which is the the the, uh, the scourge of any high performance implementation. Right. Uh-huh. And so that was the goal. Right. Is to say, can we create? That was one of the goals. The other other goal was this kind of this notion that hey, you come up with a new domain area. But actually, developing a high-performance DSL is a difficult problem. <laughs> so, what if we could kind of remove the burden of the high-performance apart from you mm. by creating a framework that allows you to develop new DSLs mm. and then leverage all of this high-performance compiler optimization infrastructure uh, mm. on top of that? So that was the goal. And so, so our view was. So we developed this infrastructure. We developed the framework. The DSL optimal was kind of the, the poster child DSL, the one that we okay. put the most work into. And at the end of the day, we figured the real value was in was in the optimization framework, not in the DSL okay. itself, right? And so going forward, we said, you know, so you know, Scala has its has has its issue. You know, it's uh, you know, it, I think it has. Peaked and, and, and gone down in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has all sorts of uh, issues associated with the complexity of the language and the number of developers who kind of uh, are conversant with it. And so, you know, our view was it was too difficult to push a Scala-based DSL, mm-hmm. but we could imagine pushing a Scala-based compilation infrastructure if the uh, DSLs that, that you created came from somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. 
So you can imagine, you know, to kind of fast forward to today and you want to optimize TensorFlow, right? So mm-hmm. you, TensorFlow will give you a graph. You take that graph, you give it to our, our framework and then we can optimize it. And, okay. Yeah. And is that a theoretical idea or is that actually what you're doing? <laughs> That's actually what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a whole yeah, yeah. huge part of the system that you don't have to worry about anymore. You right. just need to take yeah. these graphs and right, figure right. out how exactly. to optimize right, them. Right, right, right. So again, right, it's all about you know actually getting application developers to mm-hmm. use any particular language right. has its own <laughs> set of, of, of issues associated with it, right? And uh, Google's a much bigger entity than, mm-hmm. <laughs> than we could ever be mm-hmm. in pushing that sort of thing. So uh, why not? You know, right on top of that mm-hmm. and provide the added advantage that, hey, not only can you take TensorFlow, but you could take PyTorch and you can take SQL and you can take whatever and you can change it to this representation. I should just say a little bit about the representation just because... Uh, uh, Before you do that, a quick yeah, question. Yeah. So the, the part of the, the, the vision here that was, you know, these very targeted yeah. domain-specific languages, yeah. uh, TensorFlow doesn't really get you there. Like there are some things in some areas that might be built on top of TensorFlow that would kind of get you there. Yeah. Uh, or or do, do you think it does? Uh, so I would view TensorFlow as a domain-specific language, mm-hmm. right? Um, where the domain, again, is, you know, matrix and linear algebra to the large extent. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. So it's one of the DSLs that yeah, you might want yeah, to, yeah, 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 to yeah. have a full system. It's... Have you kind of moved away from you know the the idea that folks will develop very specific DSLs for specific you know problems? Yeah, yeah. Or do you think that that will happen on top of TensorFlow? It might happen on top of TensorFlow. It might have. It might might be other languages that get developed. Uh, you know, you ask sort of what the arc of the of the research. Is. Yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, we decided that that, that issue, uh, that, that question is sort of of sort of what kinds of DSLs people want to develop, that is a very kind of domain mm-hmm. specific uh, question, right? And a question <laughs> wrapped up in, in, in what languages people want to use and what abstractions really make sense. Uh-huh. And, and uh, we uh, uh, wanted to not have to develop new languages ourselves and get traction on those languages mm-hmm. and so rather we thought well, okay if there is our existing languages how can we accelerate them mm-hmm. okay and how can we provide a platform that might cut across a bunch of existing languages okay yeah. okay yeah so then um guessing that this platform serves as both a kind of a center point for your research group at Stanford, but also ties to what you're doing at Sambanova? Yeah, to some, you know, so the ideas, uh, are definitely, uh, Sambanova has their own platform, which is different from the, oh, the, okay. the, the things that we, but, but so certainly some of the core ideas. Uh, okay, so then we can maybe come back to uh, yeah, yeah. more on what Sambanova's doing. So kind of please continue yeah. the, the, the thread on um, the system. We started talking about the connection between the software and the hardware, yeah, and you know, we we kind of left off at yeah, yeah. optimizing so, yeah, the yeah, software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, piece. so let me let me fast forward to, to more recently, and about ML, and let's, let's talk about so about six years ago, Chris Ray uh, showed up at Stanford, and um, he is a 
database machine learning uh, expert. And we got chatting uh, and we started working together. We had a bunch of joint students. And he is uh, is a math whiz and he's uh, uh, knows all, all about sort of uh, theory, which you know, which I don't do. I'm a <laughs> much more of a hands-on builder kind of guy. Uh, and he, uh, and, but we started working together and we started thinking about what one could do with machine learning algorithms to optimize them for modern hardware. And he, at, uh, he came from Wisconsin. And one of the things he, uh, he did was an idea for training machine learning algorithms using uh, stochastic gradient descent, SGD, that uh, allows them to be parallelized much more efficiently. But the, the interesting thing about his innovation is an innovation that nobody who didn't know anything about the algorithm would make mm. because they would have looked at that and said, if I do this, the algorithm is going to be incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not something we want. <laughs> not something we want, right? So, you know, so I need to tell a little story. So I teach a course in parallel software at, at Stanford and there's one rule that I tell the students about parallel programming in, in, a, in what's called shared memory, right? Is this something your, your listeners would understand? Some of them. Okay. All right. Sure. Right? All right. So programming with shared memory. First rule, if you touch shared data, you should put synchronization around it. You should put locks around it, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole set of concurrency issues. Yeah, yeah. But but basically locks mean, you know, it's like go into slow mode, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, essentially that means that when you've got a lock, there's only one, one you know, what what you'd like is as much parallelism as possible. Whenever you take a lock on a piece of data, only one processor can actually be touching that data at the time, Mm -hmm. right? So if multiple processors want to touch it, the others have to wait. Right, mm-hmm. and that means that you're slowing things down. Uh, and just a, a bit of size, if we talk about locking, right? What you would like to do is not use too much locking because if you do too much locking, you'll create too much overhead. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do enough locking, you'll create what are called data races, right? Mm-hmm. Where you touch the data without locking. Well. So people say, so, so the general conventional wisdom is, hey, if you touch shared data, you should take locks. Uh, but if you, te- if you actually parallelize SGD by using locking, you do so little work <laughs> based on, you know, b- b- when you take, uh, take a lock that you'll turn, find out that all your time will be spent locking. Mm-hmm. That's all you'll ever do all day long. And that will just basically mean your program won't run very fast in parallel. Mm-hmm. So Chris Ray and his, his student came up with an idea they called hog wild, right? <laughs> <laughs> with an exclamation mark. Uh, and, and the idea is pretty simple. It says, throw out the locks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And you say, that can't be correct. What you mean? I'm just going to touch the data willy-nilly. I don't know who, you know. So sequentially, right, you're going to touch the data one after the one one iteration after the next yeah. your SGD everything looks very reasonable. Now you now you've got a bunch of parallel processes which are updating the model uh, in any fashion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They're getting stale data, 
mm-hmm. right? It, it, there is no sequential order to the updates that you could match. Well, maybe right. maybe there is, but you know, it's it certainly isn't the case that I read something in the previous iteration and I'm updating it that that this iteration it could right. be I read it. And iterations before right. the data's already been updated, and now I'm gonna, you know, gonna, so, gonna change the the model based on this, right? So, so all no, kinds of mayhem. In other words, an idea that goes against the fiber of any distributed computing. Power a, a, exactly, any, exactly, exactly. You got it. It's 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 anathema to to anybody who knows about programming. And you're saying, what the hell? What is this? <laughs> But it works. And why does it work? You can prove it works as long as you don't delay updates too much. And it's just back to this noise argument that we were having before. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, stochastic grain descent is a stochastic algorithm and it has a bunch of noise associated with things. Mm -hmm. The the, the, uh, the, the, uh, model solution bounces around. Just a a, a quick note. We were having that talk before we started recording, so you should walk us through that again, because it comes up, not just here, but also when we talk about quantization. And, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, right, right, okay, all right, so this, no, this, this notion about these algorithms, stochastic gradient descent in, in particular, which is the workhorse of um, machine learning training, and, uh, you know, the uh, basic idea, as you all know, is, is uh, or maybe some of you know, is, uh, is, is, you know, you've got a big data set, you take one of the elements of the data set, you estimate the gradient, and you move in the, in the opposite direction, and then you update the, the model based on that. Now, if you have lots of, of processes or lots of threads that are doing this, then, the mo- and then what you'd like to do is, is you'd like to lock each piece of the model as you update it so you make sure that only one processor, the, the processes all see a consistent view of the, mo- of the model. So... As I, as I said, fundamentally, this update part, sometimes you, you, you compute a gradient because you're only estimating the gradient. The gradient sends you in the wrong direction, right? So you don't actually get, you know, if you were doing, if you weren't doing stochastic gradient descent, then you would always go <laughs> down the hill until you get, got to the, 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 the optimum, which would be a global optimum if your function was convex. But if you're doing stochastic gradient descent, you can sometimes go uphill and you can bounce around. So there's some, some there's fundamentally noise associated with stochastic gradient descent, and you can uh, prove if you are so inclined about how much noise you will see uh, in in a convex optimization problem, not deep learning. Deep learning is non-convex. So the question then is, if you do anything to perturb the process of, 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 of getting to the optimum, uh, you will add noise. And the question is, how much noise do you add? And can you bound that noise to be below the, the inherent noise associated with stochastic grain descent? Mm. If you can prove that the noise you add is less than the noise that, that is already there, then you'll say you're not affecting the solution. Mm-hmm. So that's the nature of the proof. It's mm-hmm. all about you know, reasoning about noise. Okay, so with that proof, you can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can think about how much noise you add based on how stale the updates are, and then you can uh, prove that things will converge to the right answer at roughly the same rate as it would be if you had the locks in. Even if you go hog wild. Even if you go hog wild. <laughs> so, wow, interesting. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, and everybody uses it these days, right? right? You know, 
Google uses it, Microsoft uses it. You know, they, everybody, everybody, everybody goes hog wild because <laughs> doing anything else is uh, will slow you down mm. dramatically. Uh, okay, uh, where were we? We were getting to hardware, I think. Oh, getting to hardware. Okay, getting to. Okay, that's right. That's right. So, so again, so we were talk, talking about. So that was the nature of of a bunch of of, of work we did mm-hmm. together with Chris Ray. This notion of sort of what can you do uh, with with stochastic gradient descent to improve its behavior on modern hardware. Okay, so modern hardware likes to be very parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it likes to not have to. Ideally, you you like to, to to not use too much memory. Uh, modern hardware uh, likes to do things on small data types. Think eight bit integers uh, rather than sixty four bit floating point. Right. So that is uh, the. Um, key thing about modern hardware. The other thing uh, that was interesting about the work uh, with Chris Ray was um, related to the things that I talked about uh, at uh, designing uh, my talk, designing uh, computer systems for software 2.0, was this, this notion that there are two big trends in computing today. One is exemplified by the thousands of people at, at NeurIPS, right? Which is the interest in machine learning and the broad applicability of the approaches and, and the dramatic improvements in, 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 uh, in applications, especially kind of high-end applications that have to do with doing things that humans traditionally have been good at. And that, of course, is, is causing everybody to get excited. And, you know, one of the things that, is true of, of, of building complex machine learning models is that they take lots of computation. And if you look at why machine learning has been successful, it's because the computation has been available, right, to actually train these large uh, networks, right? So if you, the, the ideas are old, maybe the data wasn't there, but even if the data was there, the computing, computation certainly wasn't there, right? So, uh, so you've got this situation where machine learning needs lots of computation. At the same time, Moore's law is basically slowing down, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so Moore's law, uh, as, as uh, most people know, talks about uh, the doubling of transistors uh, every 18 to two, uh, months to two years. But what people don't know is that Moore's law may be slowing down, but that's not the real problem. <laughs> the real problem is uh, this other related law or scaling factor called Denard scaling. Okay. So Denard scaling basically says, if I double the number of transistors on a chip, if I scale things the right way, I can keep the power the same. Hmm. So I can double the number of transistors and keep the power the same. Now, if I take Denard scaling away... I double the number of transistors, and my power doubles too. <laughs> that's <laughs> now we're screwed, right? <laughs> and that's the position we've been in, right? Which is why uh, processors haven't been getting faster because they're not the ways that you speed up pro- conventional processors are not power efficient, <laughs> and we're already at the, the limit of, of, of our power dissipation, right? Uh, especially uh, you know in, in almost anything you talk about, 
right? Whether it be your, your desktop, your laptop or, or, or your mobile device. And so we, we're tapped out in, in terms of sort of what we can do with general purpose processes, given that, that we're power limited. Yeah. So the question then becomes, what do you do instead, right? And I think that is why it's such an interesting time in computer systems, because we got this convergence of these two big uh, trends, this need for insatiable amounts of comp- computation to build machine learning models at the same time that the conventional ideas for improving performance are basically stalled. Mm. And so this is kind of motivating all kinds of, of, of exploration into alternatives mm-hmm. uh, for, for general purpose processes. GPUs was, was, is an early entrant, mm-hmm. uh, but there are lots of companies investing or lots of investment going in. So one of the questions uh, at, uh, after the talk was, how much investment do I think has gone into new hardware for AI? Huh. And I estimate billions. I can okay. see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, hardware... Yeah, companies typically take in much larger amounts, uh, yeah. amounts than yeah. software. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I can think of a dozen easily. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> right. You know. Yeah, so yeah, Sabanova was well funded too. And was, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so I just need to <laughs> multiply that by, right. and you you quickly get to the billions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 then working with Chris Ray has been all about playing these games, right, okay. with, you know, with, with efficiency and noise and so on mm-hmm. to get higher, you know, so when, train, when doing SGD, it's all about how many iterations does it take to get to a certain level of accuracy, mm-hmm. right? And then what you really care about is not just how many iterations, but how long does each of those iterations take, right? right. So, you know, the definition of the number of iterations is what we call uh, uh, statistical efficiency, and then the the, uh, the the amount of time each iteration takes, we we call hardware efficiency. Right? There's all kinds of games about, you know, as you as you as you play with the noise, you affect statistical efficiency, mm-hmm. but you're also potentially improving hardware efficiency. If you make hardware efficiency worse and statistical efficiency worse, then of course you screwed up, right? But what typically you can do is make hardware efficiency much better without affecting statistical efficiency too much. So Hogwild would be an example, right? Mm-hmm. You threw away the locks uh, and uh, how, you know, iterations got faster and now you didn't have to do mm-hmm. too many extra and, and you got to the same accurate result. It strikes me that there's also uh, economic efficiency in there that is not always perfectly correlated with either of those other two. Uh, what efficiency would that be? Um, in ter- in ter- meaning the cost of getting the result that you ultimately want. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, d- that may depend, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that kind of led you down to, you know, into the hardware and kind of de- designing. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, as I said, I've always been a hardware guy, but it's always been about. So, so, so I, I, I set up this, this problem that, hey, CPUs are kind of not going to improve anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, GPUs uh, are better, but they still fundamentally have issues. You know, w- you know w- the question is, you know, how, how can you design something that is both very efficient, especially in terms of, of power efficient, uh, and uh, also very flexible? Right, because the most power efficient thing you could design would be exactly what you want. Right, mm-hmm. so you say, "Oh, here's my algorithm. 
I'm going to cast it directly into hardware <laughs> and I'm going to go fab a chip based on that. Mm -hmm. And as long as that algorithm never changes, <laughs> I'm golden. <laughs> now, that's the problem, right? right. That, right. The, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a chart that I showed. So Moore's Law says a number of uh, uh, transistors doubles every, uh, every year. And uh, if you look at the machine learning papers on archive, that's exceeding Moore's law. So we're doubling <laughs> in the number of ideas. Now, how many of those ideas are any good? Who knows, right? But they might, there's, there's probably some good ideas in, in that, that. How that many double. of those make their way to software, let alone hardware? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good point. <laughs> So, uh, so what you really do need is, 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 is a way to get both high efficiency and flexibility at the same time because, hey, you need to be able to uh, come up with new ideas and be able to implement them quickly, mm -hmm. you know, implement them both quickly in terms of performance and quickly in terms of how much time it took you to implement. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that, uh, that GPUs aren't perfect. Yes. And I happen to be overhearing a conversation uh, here at NURPS yesterday or the day before and yeah. uh, it was kind of like well you know CPUs didn't work so well for this but then we have GPUs and they solve all the problems and yeah. you know, it was kind of this always well uh -huh. uh, uh, suggestion uh, so maybe it's worth talking about what are some of the, the challenges that, uh, of, GPUs. Uh, of GPUs well you know GPUs mm -hmm. of course were designed for graphics mm -hmm. And they still, of course, have some of the baggage associated with, with graphics. But GPUs... Such as? Uh, well, they've got extra hardware for doing graphics oh, that you okay. could care less <laughs> about. You know, so if you think about silicon areas as finite resource that you want to use, and, and you care about machine learning, if I, if I use 20% of it to, to, to make graphics go fast, you say, hey, why are you taking my resources got to it. do things I don't care about, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so they still have those specific things. But more fundamentally, uh, they are these... Uh, this, this architecture is designed to, um, to execute um, matrix multiply very efficiently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... It sounds like a good thing. We, we need to do that. We need to do that. We need to do that. Uh, so the question then becomes... Is matrix multiply what you want ultimately? Mm. Ultimately, what you might want is some variant of matrix multiply that isn't quite what uh, uh, GPUs are good at. You might also want something that does sparse computation, right? Whereas mm -hmm. they're doing dense matrix multiply very efficiently. Maybe you want something that does sparse. Maybe you want to be able to fuse lots of operators together to create this very weird function. And you would like to be able to do that without having to write some custom CUDA function. If, if I can delve into some of the intricacies, I mean, so when talking about efficiency, you know, it has to do with how much of the silicon area actually goes into doing real work, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how much of the silicon area actually does multiply add? How much of the silicon area provides the memory resources for those, those multiply add units and how much of the, the silicon area goes into what we call overhead, right? <laughs> managing threads, mm -hmm. managing register, uh, uh, register contexts, doing things that are not 
really required to move the computation forward, but unnecessary to support the programming model that came with GPUs, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what are some of the things that GPUs are lacking, right? So going back to this model of uh, data analytics as being a set of data flow operators, right? So ideally, what you'd like to be able to do is cast that data flow graph directly into hardware. Mm -hmm. GPUs actually make that difficult because of the way that the memory is organized. So, but if you could do that efficiently, then there's all sorts of things that you could do that to make your computation be faster and more importantly, to make it be much more efficient, right? Everybody talks about peak teraflops, but that's not the story really. It really is about how optimally you can map any particular application to your hardware and what efficiency do you get. On a bunch of applications, the efficiencies with which GPUs get, GPU gets are maybe you know less than 10%, right? So it means less than 10% of the time you're actually kind of using the full capabilities of the GPU. So what that means is I could potentially build a machine that has a quarter of the capability, but if I could use it 90% of the time, I might be better off. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying I, I, well, I would build that, but that kind of machine, <laughs> but I just, so I, I try, you know, it, it, you know, when you say what's the matter with GPUs, it's a fairly, fairly technical argument, but uh-huh. one that has real ramifications about what performance you get at, 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 out of the end of the day. So you kind of combine these issues as sort of, you know, overhead for doing things that are not machine learning, uh, overhead for for supporting a threading, a thread, yeah, graphics, mm-hmm. uh, uh, overhead for kind of supporting this programming model associated with CUDA, mm-hmm. uh, not v- very efficient mapping of a bunch of these different uh, networks. Okay, and then you see why there's room for for other players to come in. Okay. I that, think I pulled you down a digression. A yeah, yeah, bit, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's one I'm glad to talk about, but it, it's it, it's one that that requires some level of <laughs> of understanding of what GPUs are, right? Uh, presumably, uh, a big part of what you're working on are things that fix all of the above. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How do you get? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so. It sounds like then one of the maybe interesting bits here is what it means to build a computing architecture that's kind of more natively graph aware. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 um, I think some of the things that we we um, found out was that it uh, it, it is about graphs, but it's about hierarchical graphs, right? Mm. So what you what you typically see when you kind of look below the covers of, of, of um, these graphs is that what you see is these operators, right? And the operators that, 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 that uh, you're probably familiar with from maybe the distributed execution world is, is, is map and reduce, right? Mm-hmm. So these are pretty basic operators and depending on what functions you, you, you are, are, are operating over, they can, they can be made fairly general. But, and so, we take operators like MapReduce and a few others and we nest them. And that gives you a lot more capability. And then once you have that uh, graph, right, then you can think about how could you 
optimize that graph so that it uses memory very efficiently so the communication is streamlined so you can pipeline operations very efficiently. And then you think about how can I make that graph work very efficiently in hardware? What do I need to do? So that's, that's what, it, what it's about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, uh, at Stanford, we, we worked on an architecture that we call Plasticine. Plasticine? Plasticine, yes. Okay. It's named after a children's model in clay mm. that is popular in Europe. Uh, I grew up in London, and so I played with it as a little boy. Uh, we're in Canada now. I'm sure, I'm sure they've got it in Canada. <laughs> uh, the closest thing to it in uh, the States is called Play-Doh. Mm-hmm. Everybody play with Play-Doh. The, the key difference, and I think it's an important one from, from the naming <laughs> point of view, is that if you leave Play-Doh out, it becomes a rock. Right. Hardens. Crusty. And... Crusty. Well, turns out <clears throat> the plasticine's oil-based, so it never hardens. Uh-huh. And it's like that putty stuff. Yeah, it's like a putty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. It never hardens. It. So, but, but it's not yeah. silly. Though. It does maintain your shape, right? You know, so we oh, talk about okay. gradations of, you yeah. know. Right? <laughs> subtle nuances. <laughs> subtle, subtle nuances. So if you've ever seen the, the movie Wilson and Gromit, Mm. No, okay, or um, the, these claymation uh, sorts of, thing, of things. Gumby. <laughs> yeah, Gumby is probably plasticine. Yeah, yeah, because you could keep it in its shape, take a picture, and then. Myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah, so plasticine and is. For the record, Gumby was before my time, but SNL. Uh... Oh, brought it back. <laughs> brought okay. It, back. <laughs> it wasn't before mine. I can't. <laughs> So, so yeah, uh, so plasticine is an architecture that was designed to execute these, these hierarchical data flow graphs very efficiently. Okay. So it's, it's kind of native execution mode is mm-hmm. these, these hierarchical data flow graphs. Mm-hmm. But there are a whole thing, bunch of things that you want to do uh, to do efficient machine learning execution. You want to do data flow graphs. You want to deal with sparsity, right? Is there a quick way to like rattle off what it means to do graphs in, in hardware? Like, are there kind of key principles? Uh, so, so I mean, I think you can think of execution units as these nodes, right? And ways of communicating between them so that you can map these graphs directly onto these execution units, right? And then the way that you think about moving data through these is, is in terms of, of a pipeline of data that moves through it, right? So if you were only going to do things once, then mm-hmm. it, you'd be wasting your time, right? But think of it as, an, as a multi-path intersecting assembly line, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way to think about how to kind of okay. set things up. You really are kind of thinking about you know, the cars being the data that kind of moves through this this assembly line and kind of at the end, <laughs> the cars are complete, right? Okay. But maybe they're doing, you know, is, is there some notion of like having if you've got some large graph and you're kind of mapping it to this mm. this substrate. static yeah, yeah, substrate that yeah. you're kind of swapping in parts of the graph? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, so that's a very good good question, right? So, you know, there's some machine learning. TensorFlow initially had no way. I mean, you've got a static graph, right? You mm-hmm. were done. And from a hardware point of view, you say, hooray, that's what I want. I can mm-hmm. optimize the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I map it to my, my uh, substrate and I'm not going to change it. Mm-hmm. But then you come along and say, ah, I don't. Sometimes I want to do this part of the graph. Sometimes I want to do that part of the graph. Mm-hmm. So you have to have some way of reprogramming things, right? Mm-hmm. And so a critical element of any architecture like this is how long does it take you to reprogram it, right? Mm-hmm. 
So that is a consideration, right? Okay. Because you know it's like the semi programmable thing as opposed to a well, general so, purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so think of it, you know, mm-hmm. as like you know, the assembly line metaphor is pretty pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. The, on the factory floor, you set up the assembly line and you're going to make the set of cars and it's going to be this way for months, right? right? So you set it up and then you let it go, right? But if every of you, if you, you know, well, back when I used to be a, a, a graduate student at Michigan, people were talking about these flexible manufacturing lines, mm-hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, Michigan's, of course, Michigan. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so say no more. So, and so then maybe, maybe you're doing different things for every car, right? Mm-hmm. So now you have to have some way of, of adding some flexibility, having, have, having some reprogrammability. Okay. Uh, and so, yes, now it's more flexible. But there's a truism in hardware design, and I, it goes back to something I said before about the fact that you know, you could be more efficient if you only had to do one thing. Mm-hmm. Anytime you add flexibility, you are losing efficiency, mm-hmm. right? And so there's always this game was, okay, how much right. extra flexibility am I going to add and how, what's it going to do to my efficiency? Mm-hmm. And at, you know, at some point you go too far, you say, you know, screw it. I'm, right. uh, <laughs> you know. And CPUs, of course, are at the extreme of that, of right. that spectrum, right? They're the very flexible side, on the right. flexibility side with huge amounts of overhead. Right. And the other side would be, oh, I, this is the model that I want to bake in the silicon. And bake in the silicon, no, I can't change it. Yeah, right. very efficient, but, right. but then, yeah, yeah. So, so you get the spectrum, and, yeah. and, and you're saying, you're saying, you know, what, how, you know, what's the ingenuity about what I do, about what I, what I, what, what things I can change, and what things are, are fixed, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the game. And then, what, com- what's my compiler toolchain to target that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Compile mm-hmm. tool chains for, for CPUs are very well established, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, C, LLVM, you know, what have you. You can, mm-hmm. CUDA's pretty, pretty well established too. And some of these other architectures uh, that you could imagine, mm-hmm. if, you, if you didn't have, you know, A, they have many more degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. So actually coming up with, with the right thing is, is more difficult. And B, they're just weird, you know, in fact. Um, <laughs> Weird in a good way, in that, and one of the things that that that, uh, that they don't have is explicit instructions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean? well, it, it means that uh, so an instruction would say like explicit instructions that the you know shift and move, and yeah, like, yeah low level stuff, right, right, right. Okay. So, so, well, well, they have them, but but they're done spatially, right? So you say mm. you say okay, uh, uh, I'm gonna instead of this this particular clock cycle, I'm going to do an add, and the next one I'm going to do a shift, and next and I've got a, I'm executing instruction. Then you say no, you set it up. You're always going to do a shift. At the end of, end of time, it's it's more like configuration. That's what you're going to okay. do. And I'm just going to feed. What I put. In yeah, there. I'm going to feed you data, and you're okay. going to do what you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to change. Okay. And then the next step is going to do something else, right? right? Got it. And so and so so. The, just how you get these things to why? How do you move, make the data flow so that everything gets to the right place so that the so things you need, that do their thing? Yeah, yeah. So thing. you need you, you need a network, right? Yeah, right, right. So now you understand how you're building. You're, you're building up kind of hardware which has some flexibility, yeah. but 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 not too much, right? And the figure the key thing is is where you put the flexibility and how you actually generate code for that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. 
And so, and, and, but but I should say it's all driven by the relatively static nature of at least the early machine learning, right? Uh-huh. Right. It's become more flexible, but it's still relatively static compared to say, pick your favorite other software right. space, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, how does this tie into what you're doing at Salmonova? So at Salmonova, we are doing a bunch of things. We are figuring out how to create a new platform for AI, right? And what does platform can mean a lot of things? Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> how low do you go? How high do you go? Well, we, we, so yeah. Right? So, so high, low. <clears throat> let me do low. Low is easy because we're going all the way to, to silicon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, high, uh, you know, we're going to come up all the way to 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 the frameworks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And be very broad. My understanding is still early. So. It's still early, so I can't say much <laughs> about what we're actually doing. Uh, but uh, you know, if I can, I can talk about uh, the, the founding team and, and sort of what capabilities they bring in that kind of. But we don't need to go into the team. Like, yeah. What I think is kind of interesting about yeah. this interview is that I'm not sure we ever transition from your like background to the you know to your. To your talk, we kind of it all wove together, and so yeah, yeah. So, and I chronologically in time, yeah, and yeah, end up at, ended up at what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, uh, I I have covered what I what I talked in my is in my oh, talk. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, we 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 <laughs> we we covered the whole space, and and so and, and maybe I should recap, and then, then it'll be clear. So, so the recap is okay. I started out by saying, "Hey, we're in a, we're in this this era where." Machine learning is ascendant and Moore's law is, is descendant. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. Right. We need to do things uh, differently. Mm-hmm. We need new algorithms based around these uh, ideas of, uh, of, of, of trading off statistical efficiency for hardware efficiency. Mm-hmm. We need domain-specific languages for encoding them. Mm-hmm. We need optimizing compilers for generating code. Uh, for a variety of different architectures, mm-hmm. uh, including new hardware accelerators, which are defined on top of these data flow operators, mm-hmm. uh, and then plasticine being an example. Mm-hmm. So, world, yeah. go build that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, awesome. Well, Kunle, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me. And uh, oh, well, thank you for uh, for uh, for uh, reaching out, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.